This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. We have to realize that there is a threat out there to democracy. There's a lot of countries who are more authoritarian in nature who are seeking to have their norms be the norms that cover the world. That's not a world that I want to live in. I think the democratic ideals, the values underpinning democratic countries are really important. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Suzanne Spaulding, the Interim Director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. We recently hosted Dr. Stacy Dixon, the Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence. Dr. Dixon sat down with the co-founder of Smart Women, Smart Power, and Senior Associate, Nina Easton, for a conversation on the ODNI's role in the intelligence community, Dr. Dixon's remarkable career path, and how the IC is being positioned for the future, and how they're promoting competitiveness and innovation. This podcast episode is from our Smart Women, Smart Power Speakers Series event, which is sponsored by City. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Dr. Dixon, what an honor to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Nita. I'm happy to be here. Great. Let's just start with the fact that you have had this really two-decade-plus tour at the upper reaches of the intelligence community, the CIA, the U.S. House the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, and of course now as Deputy Director of National Intelligence. What would you say is the biggest evolution of intelligence gathering during that period? And what is the greatest challenge to emerge? No, that's a great question. If you think about what caused the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to be created, Think back to 9-11 and the fact that there was information out there in the community that wasn't being integrated properly. That was the impetus for the creation. So we recognized 20 years since 9-11 back in September. Now we're talking about 17 years of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in just a few days. What's changed is the amount of integration that we've seen, that we've been able to continue to push on agencies to work together and really to leverage not only the strengths of each agency, but also the authorities of each agency to be able to do more for our customers. So to be able to provide that intelligence insight, I've seen that grow over the years. The other thing that's changed really is the threats that are out there and we have responded to those threats. Spent a lot of time focusing on terrorism and countering terrorism. Now, sort of global competition, strategic competition, it's caused us to look at how we're structured, how we are interacting with each other and trying to figure out how do we best position ourselves for these other threats that are coming. And I know we'll talk more about that one going forward, but really, Coming from a place where the ODNI didn't, didn't exist to a place now 17 years in where our place in the community in terms of being able to help with that integration and help standardize some of the things that are happening with the community, whether on the personnel side, whether on standards for analysis, whether on joint duty rotations, all of these things are things that have been brought in since then and have really made a difference in contributing to us being able to do more and provide better insight to our customers. And of course, there's been the rise of disinformation, which is on everyone's minds, especially now. It was interesting that you spoke to the South by Southwest Festival. That in itself is interesting, quite a public role to be speaking at. And you talked about how U.S. spies can help frame the truth. Talk about that. Yes. 
We did a couple things. One, we tried to frame what disinformation is because I think there's still a lack of awareness of the fact that there's a lot of information out there that is not true. And that is basically also trying to shape the way people think about various things based on what the information is. Trying to highlight the fact that we spread information all the time and a lot of that information is not truthful information. So providing people tools and ways to think about and really to be able to assess whether the information that's coming to them is fact or fiction being able to look at the sourcing of it to make sure that it actually is coming from a reputable source. We talked a little bit about that and how you can look at how we pursue analysis within the community with very structured techniques, always questioning our hypotheses, always questioning and making sure that we're looking and taking into consideration our biases as we look at information, trying to move, remove that from the process. If more people thought about the things coming through their social media feeds, the things that they're hearing about and passed from friend to friend or from coworker to coworker, thought about it from that perspective, I think the impact of the disinformation would just decrease. And that was really the awareness we were trying to reach. And that's a great bridge to what's top of mind right now, of course, is the invasion of Ukraine. Yes. Early on, the administration, obviously with the support of the intel community, decided to declassify information. Almost, it seemed like to get ahead of the curve on real information versus disinformation. But walk us through that decision. Absolutely. It started really with what we were seeing in the buildup around Ukraine, not only leveraging the sources that we have internally within the community, but really leveraging even just commercial imagery that's out there. You can actually see if you were watching that there were numbers of troops that were building up. And while Russia was stating that it was for an exercise, it was an exercise on the scale of something we had never seen before. So we thought that we wanted to make sure that others were also watching what was happening. Our intelligence was also suggesting that there was an invasion that was being considered. With that, that there would be statements coming out of Russia that would seek to justify why an invasion needed to happen, whether it was some of the things that they were saying about the individuals, the Russian speaking individuals that they were going to say were being not treated the same way, whether it was them claiming that Ukraine did something that would then justify a Russian invasion. We wanted to make sure that policymakers were aware of that making sure that our allies and, and friends in the international community were aware of it. Policymakers came back and said, well, we think this is more global than that. We think we want to make sure that the American public and the people out there are also aware. So we found ways to actually declassify the information using the processes that we already had within the community on a scale perhaps expanded because of the amount of things that they want to declassify. But we decided that we could go through and there were things that we could declassify while still protecting our sources and methods. So not jeopardizing how we've collected or where the information was coming from. Policymakers decided that that was information to be shared with the American public. And so that's sort of been a partnership within the entire community to figure out what could actually go and be declassified to be shared. But Russia still invaded. They did. There was a window of hope where it was maybe this will keep them from invading, and it did not. What it did do, though, was alert the world of what was happening, pointed people so that they were now focused on it. And now if disinformation came out, that was going to be used as a justification for the invasion, people would be able to think twice about whether or not that was actually true. Had we not publicized it beforehand, had we not shared it beforehand, it's not clear whether people would have been as aware that that could have been disinformation. And that was pretty unprecedented, right? I mean, and, and there were risks involved. Avril Haynes, the director of national intelligence, was asked about this, and she said, in terms of burning sources, she said, we're cautious, but we continue to look to see whether or not we made the right calculation in doing that, because it's a long-term thing to see whether or not you actually burn your sources and methods through disclosures. So can you take us inside the debate about that? Absolutely. So, of course, there are experts out here who it is their, literally their job to go through and figure out how to declassify things. 
The experts at the ODNI work with experts within the other intelligence agencies who actually were the ones that collected the information. To figure out how sensitive is it, are there other sources that could also have provided the same information as opposed to some of their more sensitive sources? Those are the types of things that they ask. Are these things where if we will put the information out in public, we would reveal how we had collected it, in which case that would be burning your source and that would be something that you would really not want to do that very often, if ever. So usually you're looking at whether or not there's other information out there, whether it's something that's in public, in the public sphere, or whether it's something that you can point to another type of source as to have collected the information. That then goes through the process, the very rigorous process, to make sure that we're not revealing anything. And then that would go and provide a series of talking points and details that were okayed by not only the collectors of the information, by the larger intelligence enterprise as well, to be able to declassify. So and rigorous this, and process. This proceeded over the course of a, a pretty condensed time frame. I mean, how, how it happens very, very quickly. Yes. It can happen very, very quickly. And it did, it sounds like. And speaking of collecting information, I mean, one of the most stunning aspects of the Russia invasion is how much publicly available information was out there, whether you're talking about satellite imagery or commercial signals intelligence or information on social media. How do you describe now this use of open source information? It's interesting. Within the community, I think we have been thinking about open source information and how it actually fits into the intelligence enterprise for, for quite a while. There's a lot of really useful information out there. And so figuring out how do we legally, with, with keeping in mind privacy and civil liberties, how do we bring in the information that's useful and see how it can complement the classified information we have in terms of being able to provide insights to our customers. So it's something that we've been thinking about for a while. I think the awareness right now is how much is available for the public to see, whether it is some of the companies putting imagery out on their websites for all to take a look at or highlighting it, and they're, they're very vocal as well, talking with the media about what you can see from the, the information they've collected. It puts us into a different place where we are not the sole ones to have access to that information, and there's a lot of other people now looking at what's happening around the world, which and I think interpreting is interpreting it, as you, as you and, said. That's, and it, interpreting that it. also kind of an interesting new twist for you? I think, well, it does. I know the rigor with which our analysts interpret information. I don't know the rigor with which all other analysts interpret information. So the challenge will be, there are things that I know that our analysts, if you can't say that it's come from what we can see or what we can hear, they will stop short of actually making a statement about the information. I've seen sometimes others with perhaps less rigor in their analysis make statements and claims that you really can't tell from that information itself. It may be a logical next step, but our intelligence is based on what we actually see or hear or measure. If you can't see it, you can't hear it, you can't measure it, we can suggest what we're seeing that may be the next case, but we would not take the next step to say that this is absolutely going to be what's going to happen next. So how we do things and how others do things is something that we will watch over time. I think other companies who are doing analysis are thinking about that, though, as they go forward, especially as they go back and they check and see whether they were right or wrong about the sort of the forecast that they presented. And it's interesting, too. I mean, you, you revealed, talked about in a speech very recently that you approach commercial enterprises about getting, for example, satellite imagery faster. Talk about that. People will believe what they can see for themselves. And, you know, there is information that we have in the community, some of which is derived from these commercial sources. We did ask them whether we could use, because we have contracts that allow us to use information for certain purposes. Ask them whether we could actually use that not only to share with partners, but increasingly you also see them now on their own going out and sharing more information with the public. 
because seeing is actually allows individuals to make their own judgments about it, which is, you know, we've talked about that a little bit. I would say it's a partnership on the one hand, but it's also just the companies independently wanting to be able to share more of what's happening in the world. And frankly, I think it's a great service that they're providing, putting the information out there. I'm glad we were able to sort of spur it, but now, uh, you know, they're actually leading in many ways and putting information out for others to see. So you're saying a lot of commercial enterprises are leading a lot of the information, Intel. That's I think, I th yeah. and in terms of being able to share more with the public, there's things that we would have to declassify if we were to use our classified sources. It's easier for them because their sources aren't classified, so they're able to actually just go forward. And they're putting things out there that we aren't asking them to put out. That, that's sort of what I was meaning. One of the things that's been kind of talked about inside the Intel community is why you didn't predict the difficulties the Russian military would have. Someone would, some people might also say, and didn't predict the triumph of the Taliban in, in Afghanistan. How do you answer that? Did we get it wrong? The, the statement, getting things wrong, is always a, a tricky one, right? There are certain things that are very difficult to know 100%. And to include how people think about it, how people on the ground are going to experience it, what their reaction is going to be, what their will is going to be in the face of someone coming and invading their country, for example, it's very difficult to figure out what's going to happen next. You know, we can look historically at how the militaries have acted, how the militaries have prepared, and that gives you a picture of what you think might happen. Being able to be able to guarantee that you know what the outcome is going to be is a very different, difficult thing. And one that I guess if, if you say right or wrong, we don't always get it right. But there's so many factors that go into how a country is going to react to being invaded, for example, that it's very difficult to have all of the intelligence sources that are going to pr predict an exact outcome. I think what we were able to do is talk about, you know, we can talk about you know, the buildup. We can talk about what we're seeing. We can talk about how we've seen Russia over the years plan an invasion. The exact challenges that they've had would, be, would have been really, really difficult to predict. Seeing how they've reacted to it and kind of giving some context to that, I think, is something that we've done for our customers. So to try to help them understand that even though the things that we've seen weren't what we expected in some cases, you know, giving them options of, OK, these are different things that might be happening in the future is something that we can do to help them be able to prepare for it in whatever is to come, frankly. What's interesting, too, is a lot of it comes down to the culture of organizations, hmm. the culture of the Afghan military, ah. the Afghan government, the culture of the... Ukrainian people, people, the Ukrainian military, the culture of the military in Russia, you know, troops on the ground. It's true. It's a much harder thing to measure. It all comes down to the culture and people. And people can be very difficult to predict. Organizations can be difficult to predict. You certainly use the best insights that you have over what they've done in the past, but that's no guarantee of what they're going to do in the future. So uh, you, you sort of give your best judgments and you paint a range of these are all the possibilities that may come out of there. Some of them are more likely than others, but you sort of paint the, the full picture of it and hope that the information that you're giving your policymakers is giving them the best information to make the next, next step decisions on the policy side. So there have been accusations about a, a chemical attack. How are you pursuing finding out whether that's credible or not? I mean, it's like we approach other intelligence issues. You see what information you can gather to be able to answer the question. Is it or is it not? Where, if, if yes, where? If so, how? Can you talk about where you are on that scale right now? Uh, no, not really. Okay. <laughs> but it is definitely something that we are in the community looking at, trying to make sure that we're providing the most up-to-date and the most accurate information we can to the policymakers. It's very difficult when you're doing things remotely. That's the other challenge that people have when things like that. And during the course of a war, of course, it's very difficult to be able to get in and get the same information that you might have had prior to a war being, being in effect. But we are trying to answer this, those very questions for our policymakers, and we'll give them our best insights. And what did you learn that you didn't know about the Russian military? Ooh, 
Oh, I think that's on, still ongoing. I think many people are, are looking and watching the situations and rethinking what we've seen historically and what we might have thought we would have ha would have happened. How so? You look at exercises, you look at the things that the countries are saying, their leaders are saying about their capabilities, and then you sort of match them up with the reality that you're seeing on the ground. And if they don't match up, you ask a lot of questions afterwards as to, okay, so why is it that they weren't able to do what they thought they would be able to do? Why is it that they've done something differently than they've done in the past? What are they gonna learn, Russia in particular, gonna learn from everything they've done? What are other countries gonna learn by having watched the situation? So there's a lot of what if scenarios I think that will take place and a lot of lessons learned based on how we as, an or, you know, how we as a community have been able to answer the questions of policymakers' needs. But a lot of countries will be looking at this and making their own assessments as to what this means about Russia's military, about Ukraine, about what's gonna happen later on with other countries in Europe, other countries around the world uh, who are also watching this and learning from it. And is there, before we go on to other hot spots in the world, anything else that you wanna add about Russia and Ukraine? I, you know, I, I think that this is a, it's, it's a very challenging, very challenging and disturbing time that we're in right now. We appreciate the fact that we've been able to work with allies and partners around the world, that that partnership is really, really important to have a sort of a unified front in some cases. You've seen the sanctions that have come out. You've seen the number of countries that have agreed to also put sanctions on just to sort of send that very clear message to Russia that this is not acceptable. Partnerships is going to be a huge part of really everything that we do in the future with respect to our national security and the things that are very important to our country, our interests, our allies' interests. So I, I just sort of thank everyone for the partnership out there. And I thank the public, frankly, for looking at the information that was shared with them and then making their own decisions about what was happening and not allowing disinformation to affect what they saw on the ground, to really be able to look at the facts that as they were presented and weigh those themselves. So partnerships within the willing, yes. the community of the willing, Absolutely. and partnerships between public and private. Exactly. Is what exactly. And, and what the transparency that's there, because that's something that also that the I see in general, the intelligence community has been trying to be more transparent, has been trying to find ways of not only declassifying, but sharing more information when we can. And this, I think, is, an, is sort of a next step in that iteration of really being able to, this is an example of a very significant crisis that's happening on the ground, and we're trying to be as transparent as possible. When we did our annual threat assessment earlier this year, we talked about the threats as we saw them. So there's information that we're declassifying that we have been, but certainly not on the scale of what you're seeing in the, in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. That's interesting. China. You've said that they are very much moving into our sphere uh, on a lot of levels, but the, the one area that you seem to be very concerned about is space. Can yes. you talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, you see it in, actually in a lot of different areas and, and frankly, through their own plans and their own statements that they're making. Um, whether it is the investments that they're making around the world in, in many things, whether it is their, their Belt and Road Initiative, their decision to do a lot more in technology advancements, emerging tech to include space. So space is sort of just one of many of the different places, but we know that there's an appetite for many, many countries because of the importance of space to be able to have more assets in space, to be able to do more with space. We see in this country how reliant we are on space. You know, a lot of things, whether it's GPS and just getting from place to place, are a lot of other systems that we use. And so we know that they're moving in that area and they would want to counter our very robust system, our very, um, not only our government-owned system, but even the commercial systems that are in there. They aspire to be able to do as much in that environment as we're doing. Which means what? 
which means, which means there's cyber there's... attacks. Oh, or... well, that's, I mean, that's it, a given. It, no, in space or not in space. Yeah. We see, you know, that is definitely a possibility. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of ways to threaten sort of the status quo. And cyber attacks is certainly one of them, whether it's cyber attacks in space or cyber attacks on the ground. And so we see the desire to be able to sort of control what is happening, not only in their own country, but in other parts of the world. And some of that does include looking at where they can invest in the technology space to exceed our capabilities or exceed what they think our capabilities are or to surpass those capabilities. What are some examples of that? Artificial intelligence, machine learning. Both the Chinese government and the Russian government have stated that they know to be leading in that area is to sort of lead the future. We see investments in quantum information science and what we can do with that very, very interesting technology. We see a lot of investments and stated investments both on both countries in that area. Those are probably the, the two main ones, but in other aspects of the world, automation in general, where do you see those things like that? Whether it is investments in biotechnology is another one that we've also heard both countries decide they want to invest in. You were also sounding alarms about cyber threats to supply chains. Yes. And, notice, and you've uh, noted that you're seeking to establish an American information and communication technology and sciences ecosystem to identify weaknesses. Can you explain what yes, you mean by that? Yeah. absolutely. You know, a lot of our critical infrastructure here in this country is owned by the commercial sector. And what a part of organizations like that, the goal is to be able to have government and the private sector cooperating and collaborating more so that we can not only make them aware of the threats as we see them from within the community, but also, you know, potentially help them understand how they can harden their defenses against whether it's cyber attacks or physical attacks. And so having places where we can have more of these conversations for all of the things that not only is the government dependent on, but really the country is dependent on keeping these things safe. What's interesting about your background, um, especially when you're talking about machine learning or quantum mm -hmm. computing, um, your degrees are in engineering. They are. Which is fascinating. Um, a doctorate and a master's in mechanical engineering from Georgia Institute of Technology and a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from Stanford. How did you go from that to the intelligence community, and how does it help you in your job? So what I know now about the community is that there are a lot of places where STEM backgrounds to including engineering can really make a great effect. We're, we're always trying to figure out better opportunities to collect information. So some of that is you know, building things that can collect information. Sometimes it is figuring out how to get things in certain places where you can connect, collect information. And so there's a lot of things with respect to engineering where you can contribute to that mission. What I knew when I came in was that I had, I had family, friends, and colleagues who were in the community, and while they couldn't tell me what they did, they had very fulfilling jobs. They were very excited about the things that they were working on. So I probably entered the community with less understanding about it than I certainly have now, but now I know that there is a, there's a lot of opportunity for really every single work role, but certainly for the STEM sciences. And you grew up in Washington. I did. Tell us about your youth and what your parents did. Uh, my, my dad was an engineer turned lawyer. My mom was in telecommunications. Education was always very, very important. So, you know, going to college and then going beyond that were sort of givens. My dad worked for, he became, became a judge. So he became, a, he worked for D.C. government. Oh. Working for the federal government was not something that I really had thought about growing up. I sort of thought I had a path to first engineering and then potentially ad academia and ended up making a change later on and coming into the intelligence community. So I really wasn't thinking about a job in the intelligence community growing up, even though I lived here in DC, where we're certainly surrounded by not only government, but intelligence. Was the CIA your first big professional job? Or it was, It yes. was, that's correct. A, that's yeah, so after my academic path, it was. And what made you decide that this was it, this is the path I want to pursue. What was it about that experience? You know, it's interesting. It was, it was, again, people who were in the community who said such great things about the opportunities in the community, such, such great things to what they were contributing to 
in, in general. There was no specificity. There was no specifics. I was CIA and I was actually working at the National Reconnaissance Office building satellite. The people doing that were just super excited. They used their engineering skills to really be able to, to great effect to deliver these satellites on behalf of the country. They were making decisions to help protect national security. That was sort of enough to get me interested in applying, putting an application in. And then when it came through, entered the community and great decision, best decision I've ever made, frankly, professionally. And I'm really, really happy that I stayed in because I've had so many wonderful opportunities to not only use the STEM background, really to exercise other things like the leadership, like the ability to ask questions, the ability to know how science can contribute to some of the very challenging things that we're trying to face. So it's been a wonderful opportunity to be able to use those skill sets, even though my time as, a, as an engineer per se was not that long. How would you describe yourself as a leader? I love enabling other people to solve hard problems. I love trying to be the one who can sort of reduce the bureaucratic barrier so that they can get their work done. I'm a very collaborative leader. I enjoy bringing people to the table, which is why working as the principal deputy is it's a wonderful job because we've got these 17 other elements of the intelligence community. And our deputies, we get together and we try to solve hard problems on behalf of the community to better serve our policymaker customers, to better deliver that national security and foreign policy advantage to our policymaker customers. So it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to work together. You know, it's a bit of a coalition of the willing. People come because they know they have something to offer and they know that we all share this common mission, this common set of goals. And it sort of works with the, the way that I approach things, which is in a very collaborative nature. Um, you are the highest ranking black woman in the Intel community. How would you rate, broadly speaking, the Intel community on diversification efforts? Ah. We have some ways to go across the entire organization. I'd say if you look at our leadership, there's certainly you've seen we've seen people we've broken the glass ceiling in some cases. We have broken some of these barriers and we're celebrating that. We're not resting on it, but we are celebrating the fact that we've had female principal deputies before. I am the first African-American. We haven't had a female director of national intelligence before, so we're certainly celebrating that. We've got leaders in other places within the intelligence community who have also breaking barriers themselves. We look at ourselves regularly. We look at our statistics, we look at our numbers, we look at our hiring from the recruitment all the way to the retention of, of individuals of different backgrounds to see how we're doing. And if you compare us to either the civilian lab labor force or to the American public, we don't quite look like that yet. That is aspirational. We need to be able to look more like the country we serve. And so those are, we're trying to figure out, you know, are there barriers within that are keeping people from coming in, number one, or being successful when they're there? How do we make sure that every American who wants to serve, who has some abilities that they can bring to the community, finds a place in here and can be successful? And so what would you say you have this moment to younger women and women of color about why they should think about this career path? There are so many opportunities within the intelligence community. And if you are a person who is inspired by serving your country, this is one way to do that. This is one way to bring all of your skills and expertise Combine them with the skills and expertise of a host of other people who also share that same passion for love of country to really be able to position this country in a, grit, in a good light, to be able to position us so that we can protect ourselves, protect our families, protect our allies, but also really be able to support policymakers and making the decisions on behalf of the rest of the country. It's also a place where you can be successful. Uh, having me in place, having DNI Haynes in place certainly says that if you want to aspire to these highest levels, you have examples of people who've been able to do that. There's other jobs in there that maybe there aren't the same examples, but don't let that stop you. We need good people who want to come in, and I would encourage people to learn more about it, whether through an internship or talking about to someone in the community to see whether it's something you'd be, want to be a part of. But don't hesitate. Come in, because I think you won't regret that decision. So, you know, one of the results of the disinformation campaigns we've seen in the past few years is that 
There's a big target on the intel community's back. There's a lot of you know, deep state stuff. Does that affect morale? Does it affect recruitment, affect retention? How do you deal with that internally? It's disappointing that there isn't much more trust, but it also just challenges us to want to be better so that we can be better and be more transparent so people can have a better sense of what the community does and be able to sort of have that trust. So we spend a lot of time and effort trying to figure out how we can shed more light into the, the operations of the intelligence community while still protecting those sources and methods. So it's not really necessarily a morale killer, but certainly something that we want to work towards. And it would be lovely if everything we did was trusted and embraced. It's not. We can deal with that. Recruitment, not really. Actually, we still have a lot of people who are very interested in coming into the community, thankfully. And I think that will continue to be the case because people see it as a place where they can make a difference to those sort of ultimate goals that the country has. Retention, people who are leaving will leave for a variety of reasons. And I haven't heard that one as a, a predominant reason that people are leaving because of the lack of trust, the perceived lack of trust with the American public. But we're certainly trying to continue to build that because we do need the public to trust us. And we're trying to find more ways to shed the light on what we're doing so that people can see it, putting more products out when we can, more of our assessments out when we can, having declassified versions or declassified summaries. That is a goal of ours. Brian from the Information Security Oversight Office asks, how can the government use advanced technologies to improve processes concerning the classification and declassification of information and what is being planned for in this space? Thank you, Brian. Great question. We are actually looking at how we can better automate some of the processes to declassify. I mean, declassification involves looking at whether printed or electronic files and documents to try to see whether or not you know it's covering a classified subject. You look for keywords, you look for phrases that might be problematic and might be things that we need to take out before we declassified it. Using natural language technology, using automation, using artificial intelligence to help us with that is something we're looking to do to reduce the timelines, to potentially help us so they can do a first pass through a document, flag some of those words that might be concerning to a person, words that might be the ones that we'd have to actually redact do that first pass, and then the human can go back and actually do the second pass. And we think it will speed up the processes, but it will take some investment around the community and some maturation of the actual technology to be able to do it effectively. So one massive global risk we haven't touched on is climate change. Yes. How is the Intel community, that's a rather sweeping question, I realize, but how are you addressing that? No, I'm, I'm really glad you asked because there's a number of transnational threats that sort of that go beyond a border of any particular country or region that we're looking at. And the national security impacts of climate change is how the intelligence community is thinking about it. So looking at not only, you know, are there sources that we have that actually can help answer questions about what's happening in the world? In the past, the intelligence community has declassified some of the collection we've had that's shown, you know, the melting in the Arctic, for example, was something we did, uh, you know, a number of years ago. But that will change the way transportation through there, it will change the ability to use Arctic locations for various means. We also know that climate change often is a source behind conflict, whether it's the drying up of water, the changing of resources, the possible inability to be able to feed the individuals in a country. Climate change can have a lot of negative impacts. So being able to forecast where climate change may cause future tension and future conflicts to see whether we can do something policy-wise or see whether the country can do something policy-wise to get in front of that. Where else do you go with this? Is this the, the transnational threats, also migration, human trafficking and other trafficking, whether it is drug-related or not drug-related. These are all things that I think have national security implications even beyond our borders that we're also looking at and trying to figure out how do we also increase our collection in these areas because these are things that our policymakers are asking. Right. Dr. Dixon, um, in a recent speech you asked, how can democratic societies prevail in this ongoing struggle with authoritarian regimes? I'd like you to answer your own question. 
It, it, well, part of it is increasing trust with the public. Part of it is at that transparency. We have to realize that there is a threat out there to democracy. There's a lot of countries who are more authoritarian in, in nature who are seeking to have their norms be the norms that cover the world. That's not a world that I want to live in. I think the democratic ideals, the values underpinning democratic countries are really important. The ones, whether it's competitiveness and opportunity, the ones where people have a choice of being able to choose whether they do one thing or the other. Those are things that this country has professed and that we really do need to continue to defend. So we need to talk about it. We need to look at all of the tools we have at our disposal, whether it's diplomatic, whether it's economic, whether it's military, intelligence as being able to provide those policymakers who are making decisions in those spaces with the tools they need to. So working together, government, public, industry, to make sure that the ideals and values that we profess as members of a democratic society, making sure that we are holding true to that, that we're finding ways to make sure that as we go out into the world and do business, that we're continuing to profess those ideals, that we're continuing to act on those ideals. We need to be able to counter those individuals who think that having more control over their populations, less opportunity, less competitiveness is a good thing, that that's not how we want to be. And making sure that as we go forward with international norms, that they look more like the values that we profess than the values that an authoritarian country would profess. Your position forces you to be a historian, essentially. Where are we on that trajectory? Are you feeling more hopeful, less hopeful? Where are we? I'll say it this way. As I travel around the country and meet with, for example, students at different universities, talk to them about how they see the world, I'm very hopeful. When I look at the fact that with raising the awareness about disinformation, I see more people leveraging those critical thinking skills, thinking about information. I am more hopeful. But I also know that the threat is real and that democracy is not something that you can let alone. It's something that we have to continue to fight for and hold people accountable to the values that we profess. We have to continue to do that. So I am hopeful, but I'm also very, very realistic that there's a lot more threats out there and a lot more leaders of countries around the world who don't think that that's the path that they want to follow, who think that there's a more expedient path by being more of a controlling person over their countries and that we're going to constantly be in battle over that, frankly. So hopeful, but realistic at the same time that the challenge is real and the challenge continues to grow. And do you think what we're seeing on our TV sets right now in the Ukraine is helping people understand the importance of defending democracy? And I hope Young so. people in particular who didn't grow up during the Soviet Union. And certainly, certainly haven't grown up with seeing a lot of conflict, especially depending on how old they are. I think it is important. I think it, it's important because it was a one country invading another is not something that you see very often. It's something that, that should be condemned. It's something that should be mitigated and reduced. You don't want to see that happening. I think the awareness that it's raising, we're still in a world where things like this happen, is something that is necessary for people to see so that they can see that we do need to continue to protect those values. We do need to continue to protect those partners and that the world isn't necessarily going to just sort of stand idly by when people go and do something like that to another sovereign nation. Well, Dr. Dixon, you're an incredibly eloquent spokesperson, not only for the intelligence community, but also for democracy and the future. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Nina. I appreciate the questions. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.